We are in our Sermon on the Mount series, and uh, before I jump in, uh, I just want to say that I was just out in the hallway admiring the food that you guys all brought today, and my goodness, you guys love each other and you love God. Praise God. Uh, I'm really excited about this. Um, But I would like to pray for our time together as we teach, so join me in prayer right now. Dear Lord, we just come to you grateful for this morning and grateful for this opportunity to be with each other and to be with you, God. Thank you for your word in Matthew 5 and um, what you have for us this morning. So I just pray that your words can penetrate our hearts and our minds, our soul, and that we can use them not only for our benefit, but for your glory, Father. We thank you. It's in Christ's name. Amen. So if you guys have been around the last couple weeks, like we've said, we're in this series. Uh, It's about the best sermon ever preached, ever. Sermon on the Mount. We're in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. And uh, if you're not super familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, I can catch up real quick. Uh, The Sermon on the Mount was actually Jesus' first main teaching. So right when Jesus shows up on the scene, uh, he has a group of people following him. He has his disciples. He literally goes up on the side of a mountain and he gives this sermon. And Jesus had been teaching and building a reputation. People have been hearing his name and thinking, like, who is this guy? Who is this new rabbi? I want to find out who he is. And so people come, and there's this large crowd, and he gives this sermon. And it's basically the first time that Jesus, uh, he's not, like, tearing down the Torah. He's not going against all Jewish traditions and the law. But he's basically saying there is a new kingdom that God is ushering in. And here's what it looks like. And he's connecting to the Old Testament scriptures, but also talking about a new way of doing things, a new kingdom. And so last week, I I took some of the last words out of the Old Testament, out of Malachi uh, chapter 4, and I compared them to some of Jesus' first words. It's a pretty stark comparison how the Old Testament ends with a warning and a curse, and then some of Jesus' first words in ministry are blessings, a promised blessing. Jesus was embodying a new way of doing things, a new relationship with God, a new way to salvation, a new kingdom. So basically, the Sermon on the Mount clarifies our need for saving, and it offers a new message of blessing and salvation through Jesus, which is openly offered not only to Jews, but to all people, through Christ, his life, death, and resurrection. Last week, we talked about the verses on salt and light and what that means, and basically the conclusion that we came to was that What God really wants from his followers is he wants inward heart change. He wants us to be devoted to him and to his ways, but he also wants us to be outwardly acting on that change, not just saying that we love God and we follow him, but actually doing something about it. Encountering the gospel necessitates change. It requires action. So with all that in mind, when we look at the Sermon on the Mount, we can now fully or begin at least to understand the how and why behind it. And really what it is, is it's Jesus setting the record straight on what God's heart is and his character. And then it methodically goes through these different kingdom initiatives, these different practices to clarify what this new kingdom will look like. So we talked about salt and light, and today we are talking through the really riveting, excellent passage on divorce. It's really fun to talk about divorce. <laughs> I hope you're laughing. There's probably some of you that are like just now looking at your phone, you're like, oh, uh, I got this thing that just came up. I got a, a, in the hallway, I had to go do this. It's not fun to talk about it, right? And I really feel like it's a hard subject. And so I really just want in this place to start off, I just want to acknowledge 
that divorce, talking about divorce, learning about divorce, what this is, what the Bible has to say about it, God's heart behind it. I just have to say it, it is a hard subject. It is a hard thing to talk about. Not only because of what Scripture says, but because we all approach this from different perspectives. We have different thoughts and opinions about it. Many of us are a product of divorce, or we've been touched by it. And so I just want you guys to know that as we have this conversation, um, this, this place here, this community of believers, this is a place of love and of peace. And so it's not a place of judgment. There is no judgment. There is no condemnation. And I certainly hope there's no shame here. I feel like because this is a hard subject and because we all have varying opinions, I just want you guys to know that God's with us, he's with you, and he loves us. In our day and age, everyone has been touched by divorce in some way or another. I'm willing to bet that everyone in the room right now knows at least one person who has gone through a divorce. Maybe you've had family members who have experienced divorce. Maybe you grew up in a family that was a result of a divorce. Maybe you yourself have been divorced. And as Christians, as Christ followers, as believers in God, we are all the product of a spiritual divorce. Adam and Eve from God in the Garden of Eden because of sin. Divorce harms and it alienates, it damages, it exploits, and it burdens all who have experienced or been touched by it. And that's not even taking into account the emotional toll, that damage too. So here's some statistics for you guys. And this is all just U.S. census data from the years 2000 through 2020. Just under 50% of all marriages in the United States will end in divorce. As a country, we have the sixth highest divorce rate in the world. In the United States, there is a divorce every 47 seconds. Currently, the divorce rate for married women is 16.9 out of 1,000, or 17 women out of 1,000. And that number is nearly double what it was in 1960. But it's down from the all-time high of 22.6 in the early 1980s. The 80s were great for music, but not so much for marriage. Uh, here's another interesting t- uh, statistic for you guys, a little stat. So this are the, for going by occupations, these are the top five occupations with the highest divorce rates. So dancers is number one. Doesn't say what kind of dancers. Make your own assumptions there. Bartenders, number two. Massage therapists comes in third. Gaming cage workers and gaming service workers. So if you're a dancer, bartender, massage therapist, or you work at a casino, uh, ouch. I'm going to let you guys draw your own conclusions about those occupations. Researchers estimate that 41% of all first marriages will end in divorce. As of 2019, both marriage and divorce rates in the U.S. were decreasing. The marriage rate dropped from 8.2 out of 1,000 people in 2000 to 6.1 in 2019, and the divorce rate dropped from 4 out of 1,000 to 2.7 in 2019. Recent studies show that millennials, my generation, are choosing to wait longer to get married and they're staying married longer. They are the main driver in that decline of both the marriage and divorce rate in the United States. But don't start patting yourself on the back too quick. (laughs) Studies also show that millennials and Gen Z marriage rates are significantly lower than Gen X and boomers. 
meaning that although the current generations aren't divorcing as much as the previous ones, they're just simply choosing not to get married at all. It seems like our society, our culture, has given its youngest generation such a rosy, fun picture of marriage that they are running away from the institution altogether instead of marrying and then getting divorced. Divorce is not only a problem in our culture, in our country, it's a problem for Christians, for Christ followers too. If you look at the exact same divorce statistics from the U.S. Census, among Christians, our divorce rates in that same time frame are the exact same. There's zero difference. Here's a quote from a biblical scholar and theologian, teacher, writer, Tim Mackey. He says this, He says, there's a deep cynicism in our culture regarding marriage. As Christ followers, we are heirs to a vision of marriage and relationships that is so beautiful, a vision that is filled with such hope for our culture. It's a vision of marriage and relationships that's rooted in the gospel. It sees marriage as a reenactment of the grace and of the story of Christ's self-giving love between a man and a wife. I think this is exactly why it's so prudent for us to examine Jesus' words here in the Sermon on the Mount regarding divorce, because it helps us understand God's heart for his people behind all of this. So if what Mackie is saying is true, and I believe it is, that marriage is a beautiful reenactment of Jesus' love and grace for the church, and our divorce rates among Christians are the exact same as they are in the world and culture that we live in, then it appears that there's a huge disconnect between God's heart for marriage and his people. So let's unpack this and dive in. So we're in Matthew chapter 5, and I want to look at verses 31 and 32. So if you have your Bibles, you can pull those out. I think we have it on screens. We do. So here we go. I'm going to read this for you. So this is Jesus talking, and he says, It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries her, a divorced woman, commits adultery. So two brief verses. It's not a huge section in the Sermon on the Mount. But there's a lot going on here. And I'm sure you're thinking this, I'm thinking this. What does this all mean? What is a certificate of divorce outside of our context of a certificate of divorce? Why does it seem like the burden of divorce is placed almost solely on women? And what am I missing here? It seems like there's a lot of context that's missing. If you look at the end of verse 31 in your Bible, you don't see this on the screen, but in your Bible, if you're looking at an app, you're going to see like a little asterisk or a footnote or something, something that tells you to look at the bottom of the page. If you go down to the very bottom of the page, it's going to say something about Deuteronomy chapter 24. So I want us to read that just to have a bigger picture of what Jesus is talking about here. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4 says this. And I'm just going to warn you, it's like a huge run-on sentence. So hang in there. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house, and... If after she leaves his house, she becomes the wife of another man, and her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house, or if he dies, then her first husband, who divorced her, 
is not allowed to marry her again after she has been defiled. That would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Do not bring sin upon the land the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance. Here in Deuteronomy, this is Moses. He's speaking to the Israelites. If you know the story of Moses, he went into Egypt. He rescued God's people, the Israelites, out of bondage and slavery. He brought them into the wilderness. God had this promised land for them. They made some questionable choices, and God said, you know what? We're going to hang out here for 40 years. I want to talk with you guys about some stuff. Moses goes up on a mountain. He gets the Ten Commandments. He comes back down. He gives them to the Israelites. They eventually say, great, these are awesome. But then they also say, time out. Uh, those Ten Commandments, um, there's a lot of gaps in between there. Can you like, tell us a little bit more? Can you explain things? Can you give us some more information? There's a lot of nuance here. And so in this section, Moses is specifically talking about the command to not steal. So you might say, what does that have to do with marriage and divorce? Moses is including marriage and divorce here because in this time and place, in that culture, marriage dealt a lot with property and property exchange. Marriage was the joint of two families together. There were things like dowries, the exchange of property, livestock, uh, gold or, I don't know, coins. I don't think they had paper money back then. Uh, but it was also the exchange of women who in that culture had pretty much no power or influence. They were very much viewed as property. And so a marriage started to feel like more of a transaction than a tradition. Women would be moved from one family to another in the context of marriage. Moses is laying out a framework here for the Jews, for the Israelites, so that it would prohibit them from wife-swapping. So if you've ever watched that TV show, just block that out of your mind. We're not talking about a show. If a man could divorce his wife and then take her back, then the process could be repeated often, thus turning the wife into a piece of property that could be exploited. The law was intended to propagate God's covenant, communal structure of love and care for those that were weak by shaming practices that were exploitative. So simply put, what Moses is trying to prevent here by allowing divorce, by giving a certificate of divorce, he's tr trying to prevent divorce from becoming an opportunity to exploit a woman. Divorce in that time and place left women powerless and penniless. These were women that were dependent on grace, the grace of their community, the grace of their family of origin to take them back in and take care of them, and almost always the mercy of yet another man to marry them and take care of them, provide for them, and thus starting this process all over again that could potentially lead to being exploited again. But we know from reading the Bible that this was not a part of God's original plan for marriage. Not even close. There's a ton of scripture that talks about how God originally intended how he planned marriage to be. And we just simply don't have enough time to talk about that uh, because of the brunch that's coming. We could spend a whole series talking about what God wanted marriage to be originally. But if you're just going to have to take my word for it, the foundation of that framework comes out of Genesis 2 verse 24. It basically says, a paraphrase, is that in the Old Testament and later by Jesus, marriage was a God-ordained covenant relationship exclusively between a man and a woman. 
this lifelong relationship would become the foundation of families and procreation for God's people. That's a very simple way of saying that, but that's the gist. What did that framework not say? It didn't say, if you get tired of your wife, divorce her. It didn't say, if you get lazy and don't really want to put forth any more effort, divorce. It certainly doesn't say, if you find someone better, divorce. It says none of those things. In fact, Scripture clearly lays out how much God dislikes, how much he hates divorce. If you fast forward in the Old Testament to Malachi chapter 2, verse 16, it says this, The man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. If you look at a couple different versions, there's some versions of that same passage that start with the phrase, I hate divorce, says the Lord. Divorce was never intended to be a part of God's original plan. It's clear that what God is allowing in Deuteronomy 24 through the law that he has given and through Moses is not close to what he originally intended or designed for marriage. We even see this back in the New Testament later in Matthew chapter 19 when a group of Pharisees come to test Jesus. Matthew 19 verses 3 through 8, it says this. The Pharisees asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? And Jesus replied, haven't you read that at the beginning the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they will no longer be two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. And that actually, that, those uh, three verses there, four through six, that's the Genesis 2.24 that I mentioned earlier. It goes on to say in verse seven, the Pharisees replied, why then did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? And in verse eight, I just love Jesus' response here because it's snarky and sarcastic. Jesus says, Moses permitted you guys to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. It's pretty clear that divorce was allowed to enter into the equation as a concession by God saying, hey, it's not what I originally planned, but fine, just don't exploit women. Jesus is not on board with the exploitation of anyone, women or men. He is not supportive of the old practice of giving a wife a certificate of divorce because she's no longer desirable. For Jesus, divorce is not a matter of institution, it's a matter of justice. It's not about preserving broken marriages, it's about not taking advantage of weak and abused, hurting people. Rather, it's about God putting his heart on the table for the abused, the exploited, the marginalized, the weak, the poor, and saying, look, I want these people to be whole and cared for. It's clear when we look at divorce that God is about justice. That is what God is about. Most of you know that I have two kids. Jess and I have two kids, twins. And our twins, they have a lot of stuff. Their birthdays are in early January, so for a three-week period between Christmas and their birthdays, there is a sudden influx of toys and books and stuffed animals that enter our house 
for the entire year. Like we get a whole year's worth of stuff in three weeks. And I feel like I've learned a pretty profound lesson from these toys that enter into our house every year around this time. I have learned that my primary role as a father is to fix broken toys. Some fixes are easy. You can replace batteries or charge a battery. Some are hard, like fixing a broken light or attaching a wheel that fell off. I personally find enjoyment in this. If I'm able to fix something and like prolong its death as a toy, I also enjoy the look on my kids' faces when they see something that was broken that is now able to be played with again. But I have learned that the fix, the replacement part, is always weaker than the original. It never lives up to the factory-built original. That soldered wire always pulls apart. That glued wheel always comes off. That taped spine on a book always breaks. The original factory-built version will always be better than my fix. I think we experience this in a lot of areas of our lives as well. We settle for lesser versions of better things. I mean, we talk a lot in our culture right now about being fit and eating well as we pull into the drive-thru at McDonald's for lunch. We talk a lot about, you know, high-quality goods, and yet when I go buy tires, I am always tempted to buy the lower-mileage ones because they're cheaper, but they're never going to last as long. If you have a home repair like a leaking roof, you're always tempted to just patch it, knowing full well that 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 patch on the roof will weaken its integrity and probably cause it to fail sooner rather than later. I think we have grown quite accustomed to settling for cheaper versions of things in life. And I think that's what Jesus is addressing here in the Sermon on the Mount as a whole. He's telling God's people, you have settled for a lesser version of all of these things, all of these institutions, all of these ways of doing things, of being in relationship with God. But I have a better version. I have the OG, original factory-built version of a relationship with God. Most of the times when we talk about divorce in this context, biblically, we lean towards looking at what a good marriage should be. We tend to focus on a biblical marriage. Mark said he hates that term <laughs> when I shared that with him. Uh, you can talk to him about that later. So it would make perfect sense right now if that's where we pivoted in this message, is we focused on like what is a biblical marriage? What is the ideal version, the original version of that? And we could go into Ephesians chapter 5, and we could start in verse 21, and we can look at what the original plan was. And there's this really beautiful picture of what marriage should be. A husband and a wife, the man being the head, the woman submitting to the husband. But the example we're given of what that actually looks like is not a couple, a human couple. We're given the example of Christ and the church. Jesus is called the head of the church. But then look at what Jesus did for the church. He humbled himself. He submitted himself to us. He made himself lower than us. He died on the cross for us, sacrificed himself for us. So if that's the biblical model of marriage, you have a husband and a wife. If the husband's the head, then he needs to be submitting himself to his wife. 
It goes on in Ephesians to say, women, submit yourselves to your husbands. So then the wife's job is to go underneath the husband. It's like there's this beautiful, mutual dance of submission that happens where husbands and wives try to out-submit one another constantly. It's not about power and control. It's about putting yourself lower than the ones that you love. So if that's where this message went, that would be great. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. It's good to look at what, God, what a good marriage should be. But I've realized in talking about this and researching this, that if we did that, then we're alienating anyone who's experienced or been touched by divorce. We're saying, sorry you're divorced. Sorry you've been hurt by that. We're going to talk about what a good marriage looks like. Peace. That's not what Jesus is doing here. What Jesus is telling these Jews, these cultural ethnic Jews who know the Old Testament forwards and backwards, is he's saying, this is how you guys have done things. And I'm here to tell you that this is not how it was intended. Here's the new way. We're turning and going in the opposite direction. Jesus is saying that God no longer endorses divorce. He no longer endorses exploitation of women. Jesus is saying that the institution of marriage and by proxy divorce are no longer vehicles that we're going to use or allow to take advantage of weaker people. And I'm not just trying to say it's only women that are exploited, because I think in our culture, in our current day and age, there are men that get exploited through divorce as well. Kids get exploited as well. It's not just women. Jesus is saying that my way, my way is all about grace. It's all about love, and it's all about peace. So if you're one of those people that I mentioned at the top of this message, if you're someone who has experienced or is the product of or has been divorced, I just want you to know that God loves you. Matthew 10, verse 30 says, this is Jesus saying this, he says, and even the very hairs of your head are all numbered, meaning that God knows you. He knows you better than you know yourself. He knows you so well that he knows the number of hairs on your head. And for guys, he even knows the ones on your back too. He knows you. He knows you. And not only does God know you, but he cares for you. But God also knows and is fully aware of the current condition of this world. He knows the current condition of every inch of this planet. He knows about every single one of its people. He knows about all of their actions, all of the good deeds, all of the mistrusts, all of the abuses, all of the hurts, all of the wounds, all of the deaths. He knows all of those things too. God knows and is fully aware of how very little, if anything in this world, lives up to the original plan and intent that he created. And that's because of sin. God is fully aware of that, which is exactly why he sent his son Jesus to this planet to die for us, to fix everything one last time. God created everything to work in its original design, the original factory-built world and humanity. But due to sin and brokenness in this world and its people, everything, everything falls short of that original design. 
very few things, if anything, work the way it was designed to. And if nothing works the way it was designed to, those patches and those fix, fixes, those workarounds, all of those things are going to eventually fail in one way or another, just like the Hot Wheels track that I hot glued last week. God knows and he understands. That is exactly why he sent Jesus again to die for us, to restore this broken place and all of its broken relationships and all of its broken people to fix it one last time. So if the God of the universe knows this world is broken and he knows that his institutions like marriage are not living up to the original design and he knows his people are broken, then you have to know that God is not judging you today. He's not holding you to some unattainable standard. There is no judgment. There is no shame. And I really hope that there is no guilt. God gets it and he gets us. He gets our best moments and our worst. And he still loves us. He still loves you. More than any words that I could say could ever describe. Jesus is not about settling for lesser versions. He is all about restoring broken things. This is the way of the radical kingdom that Jesus is talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. And I can't wait to take that next step with you guys as we look deeper into this sermon. Let me pray for you. Father, I just thank you for this morning and I thank you for hard conversations about hard things, God. I just want to pray for anyone that has been touched by divorce, whether it be personally or through a friend or a family member, whether it's a child, a son or a daughter of divorced parents or someone who has gone through a divorce is going through a divorce right now. Father, I just ask that you give an abundance of your peace and your love, that you give us the spirit that much more to comfort those that are hurting, to comfort those that are broken and help them restore. We love you, God, and we just thank you for today and for how much you love us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.